Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. Yeah, um, so what are we talking about today for the book club? We're talking about uh, chapters, let's see, what was it, 10 through? Yeah, chapter 10. Um, I mean, when we were trying to do this last week, I mean, we really, we covered a good bit of ground. I mean, we talked about, uh, I remember right off the bat, we kind of, you just talked about how, in Marx's idea of the working day, it's it's not a fixed quantity, and mm-hmm. uh, all of the all of the variables and aspects of the working day are fluid. Um, so you know it can only vary within certain limits, and uh, and we can't determine what the smallest amount. It's it's hard to determine what the smallest limit of a working day is. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> you know, uh, regardless of who wins the election. I don't think the chapter 10, the working day is going to change very much. So for normal people. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, um, exactly. So, yeah, uh, let's see. I was flipping through. I accidentally hit chapter nine. Uh, yeah, this is definitely going to be low energy pod today. Um, but, yeah, so. the yeah, I mean, and chapter- that's okay because it's not like. And chapter the, the biggest takeaways for me from chapter ten aren't like groundbreaking info. I mean, he kind of just like he, he like I said, uh, uh, he kind of puts it under the the capitalist system. He kind of puts it in a microscope of just putting it in a one word day, and and he applies some science to it. And I think uh, you and I talked about and maybe we, we can we can put it on this episode if we're gonna do a, a full uh, if this works out, we get a full episode out of it. Um, you mentioned that. Uh, and you asked me about if we thought uh, is is Marxism a uh, a science or is like studying or no you said economy I think was it a political economy was it a science no was I like, said was is Marxism a science right 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 and uh, and, and you you said it's not really a science because uh, I guess because there's there's very little like scientific mythology or uh, methodology to apply to it. Yeah, it's more it's more of just like political philosophy and political ideas applied in this in in an economic sense. So, um, yeah, I think I, th- I think there's still to me, it still feels kind of scientific in a sense, because it's like an application of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that th- there's a blurred area, the application of ideas and philosophies and um, the practice of, you know, the practice of our minds and understanding how we behave and trying to understand our behavior. That's, I mean, I know it falls in line more with philosophy and like, uh, and humanities. Well, it, it's hard to, it's hard to classify. Right. Because like, once you're determining, like once you're trying to determine like what is scientific and what's unscientific, you have, you run into this problem with like, especially like psychology, right? Like psychology is a discipline that can be considered scientific, but it can also be considered philosophical. Right. So if you have, if you have a concept like, um, like when Marx talks about the economy, right? Like uh, you wouldn't say that being an economist, you wouldn't say, Hey, an economist is a scientist, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. Marx isn't necessarily 
like he is he is giving a critique right like capitals again capitals um subtitle subheading is a critique of political economy right so he's it's a great critique and marx isn't necessarily scientific in his critique he does have math right i would say it's mathematical in a in a sense where i guess like in that sense it's kind of scientific right it's like empirically going through but the problem is that like none of these um none of these observations are provable or disprovable right so that that's that's again like you you get into this Mm -hmm. territory where what what is a science right science is like you have like our, our modern definition of science is different than like you know, science, like science as opposed to philosophy is philosophy is like grand sweeping questions about certain things, whereas science mm-hmm. is the same thing, but science is, is empirically, mm-hmm. you can prove it or you can disprove it. Right. Um, um, so I think that in, in that regard, I don't think Marx's critique is scientific in the, in our modern like day. Right. Yeah. idea of scientific um but yeah I, i'd say it's more again I, like I, I said it to you i think it's more of a sociological text if anything right yeah, it's more no, of yeah, a that, historical historical slash sociological text right yeah 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 no that's good yeah um it's just like i guess i i tend to when it becomes scientific to me or you know it's like you uh, apl- applying practice into a theory and the, the execution of that, uh, the practice and, and, you know, trials and whatnot, you know, that's, that's part of the scientific method. And it's almost like if we, if we try to execute or apply Marxism to uh, a current, you know, society, societal system, then that, there's kind of, that's probably just more where I'm thinking it's scientific is because you're applying an idea and you're trying to execute that idea. Um, but then I guess that's when it comes to it's scientific in that sense because we're trying to apply it and it's like we're we're doing a lab test or where and we're trying to getting the results. And I would say that uh, the Marxism and capital would would therefore not be a scientific text because uh, Marxism as a whole might be something that you can apply. But the the thing about um, capital is that there's no Marx doesn't prescribe right. a treatment. Like I think you and I talked about this um, last episode that we actually like uploaded was that mm. Marx is really good at critiquing capital and capitalism, and he determines wow. how it works, but he never provides a solution to it. At least right. in Capital, at least in Volume One, since of what we read mm. so far. Right. Um, um, yeah, like it's, it's it mostly is a critique, and sometimes I'm forgetting that when I'm reading it, what I'm trying to do. What I, what I feel like I'm trying to do is uh, uh, I'm trying to do much. I, I'm, I'm assuming what his application process would be. And mm-hmm. I, I have to keep in mind what I mean is that it is a critique and it's not he, he's not he's not going to be offering solutions or he's not going to be offering uh, his theory into what uh, what the alternatives are, or what kind of practices we can, uh, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah. do so. Um, but, uh so I guess we're getting to like what he actually says. Like, so we're going through, we're finishing up section three, right? Uh, or right. three, which is chapter 10, the working day and chapter 11 rate and mass of surplus value. So, mm-hmm. uh, chapter 10, section one, the limits of the working day. 
Um, so in this chapter, Mark says that the working day isn't a constant, but it's a variable quantity because um, there is a absolute minimum amount of time. So I, I like this line. He says the working day is therefore determinable, but is per se indeterminate because mm -hmm. um, the working day has to be um, it has to be maximum of 24 hours. Right. Because it's not physically possible to get a whole day out of over 24 hours. Then right. it just becomes, yeah, and then it becomes a multiple working day. It's multiple, then it's working days or a working week. <laughs> right. So the working right. day has to at least be less than 24 hours. But he says it's determinable in that sense, but it's indeterminate because the working day can be anywhere from, you know, uh, mm. five seconds to, you know, 23 hours and 59 minutes, you know, so. Right. Uh, but and he says this is part where he talks about um, there are uh, there are um, like inherent contradictions in that mm -hmm. there's an inherent antagonism between the capitalist and the work the laborer the worker because the worker he has to uh, he has to have uh, part of the day, he uh, he must rest, he, he must sleep, and he says uh, during another part of the day, the man has to satisfy other physical needs to feed, wash, clothe himself, and he also right. has to satisfy his intellectual and social wants. So like time with the family, like you know, uh, reading, writing, uh, mm. doing something that you enjoy, smoking, drinking, whatever that may be. Man has to have time to refuel that, but the capitalist doesn't. Uh, he doesn't care about all of that. He doesn't. The right. Capitalist wants, yeah, he says right after that, you know, the capitalist wants to maximize his working day, and he wants to maximize the capital that comes out of his working day. Um, at all events, a working day is uh, less than a natural day. Um, the capitalist has his own views of this point of no return, the necessary limit of the working day. Uh, as a capitalist, he is only capital personified. His soul is the soul of capital. Um, so, yeah, he doesn't, uh, you know, the capitalist and the boss at wherever you work, you know, they don't they don't care about your intrinsic and social needs during that time because they feel like during that time they own you and they own the labor that you're uh, that you're supplying. So, um, you know, we're, we're seeing just applying it to today's terms, we're saying just so, so many people, uh, just be absolutely miserable and resort to, uh, you know, resort to drinking and, and drugs, the awful, you know, opioid pandemic and the, and the, the mental illness issues that the, uh, the late capital hillscape that we're in is, is facing. And it's because of the dehumanized capitalists that we have running it. Well, it's also capital itself, right? Cause Mark says, right. He says, capital is dead labor that vampire-like only lives by sucking living labor and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. The time right. during which the laborer works is the time during which the capitalist consumes the labor power he has purchased of them. If the laborer consumes his disposable time for himself, he robs the capitalist. So the thing is, like, you also have to realize that um, when you're talking like in a Marxist way and you're doing a Marxist critique, 
you know, people are always saying like, oh, you know, like um, uh, there's this entity that like is constantly brought up of capital, right? Well, you right. have to realize Marx himself says that capital, capitalist is capital personified, right? The, the goal of the capitalist right. is to maximize capital, right? Is to garner mm. capital to, to drain that surplus value. And capital itself requires that of a person, right, to generate mm, surplus right. value. So the capitalist is draining literally, quite literally, the, the vital life force of the laborer to produce mm. that surplus value. Yeah, Marx, Marx likes using the blood-sucking leech kind of example for a capitalist. He, he, he called them, uh, in one of the later, earlier chapters, he called them a parasite or a parasitic leech or something like that. Yeah. Um, so he, he's that's another time he's used this metaphor. And I mean it's a good metaphor. I mean like who hasn't who hasn't absolutely just felt like their job was, you know, metaphorically sucking the life out of them, you know, and and capital like you said capital is it's manipulative like that, you know, it um it's the capitalist is the heartbeat of capital. Um yeah, he he embodies it. And, uh, you know, it's not like he, they the capitalist is like, you know, I am the storm. I am capital, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah I, like, and here, I definitely like his poetic speak here about it. And here on that same page, he discusses that um, there is an antimony right against right, both equally bearing the seal mm -hmm. of the law of exchanges between equal rights force decides. Hence, mm -hmm. is it that in the history of capitalist production, the determination of what is a working day presents itself as the result of a struggle, a struggle between collective capital capital. Mm -hmm i.e. the class of capitalists and collective labor, i.e. the working class. Mm -hmm. So there's an inherent class antagonism there. So when you talk about like class reductionism or something like that, like there is an inherent antagonism mm -hmm. between classes. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, the thing about this chapter though, and I said this like uh, the first time we tried to record, um, is that Marx keeps going on. He discusses different things like um, uh, he discusses the Factory Act of 1850, right? Mm, right. Um, which limited the working day um, for like average work. If, if he limited the average working day for 10 hours uh, for the first five days, um, 12 or yeah, 12 hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p. including half an hour for breakfast and an hour for dinner, right? And thus leaving 10 and a half working hours and eight hours for Saturday, right? And then Sunday, <laughs> right. Sunday was off, so people worked 12 hours every single mm. day except for Saturday where they worked 10 or where yeah. they worked. Oh, sorry, where they worked eight, right? And, and, and he emphasizes that. Uh, and I'm jumping ahead to the next section here. Um, he emphasizes that really in the he says the voracious appetite of surplus value, uh, the know, werewolf's and, hunger. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's like you know the you know in my words, not his. It's kind of like uh, the the more you eat. Well, he said it already. The more it sucks, the more it wants. So like a, a werewolf or a cow or something that has a big stomach that doesn't you know it doesn't it, it's always eating, and the more it eats, the more. So, yeah, exactly. So um, vampires and, and leeches are good examples. And this section also uh, talks about. Um, so there is a uh, so, mm -hmm. so there's a total 
hours um, basically that a person can work right in this fact in factories uh, during the year 1850 in London. And he said that there's actually a, a again, this is really important part of this whole thing is there's actually profit to be gained by violating the act because you, if you overwork, um, like your employees, small amounts, then you'll actually gain money, right? You'll gain more capital. Oh yeah. Um, and what it is, is like they found out that they can chance not Mm -hmm. being caught because the penalty, the small amount of the penalty and the costs for overworking Mm -hmm. is nothing in comparison to the extra exploitation that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, they don't, they don't, the, the, the penalty is so, uh, it's so insignificant to pay compared to the capital they generate from that extra work, you know? So like they, if, you know, if it was just a little slap on the wrist, I mean, you know, if, if, if you go your whole life, just getting a little slap on the wrist, I mean, it eventually you just kind of learn to, your your pros outweigh your cons there, you know. So um, yeah, and and I think um, I think it's important to highlight that section because um, you you know it's kind of uh, I mean it just shows like uh, you know we talk about I mean it happens today too. We find that there's been violations of workplace safety or or whatever in in mm-hmm. favor uh, you know of capital essentially like you know uh, well, Amazon is a prime oh, yeah, example exactly. of that. I was, no, that's exactly what I was going to say is I think Amazon was just busted for um, something to do with their overtime policy or something like that. They just got called out and I don't know if there's any kind of like uh, uh, legal matter uh, surrounding it now, but I'm pretty sure Amazon got busted for not paying people overtime or something like that. Yeah. And Amazon, I mean, recently, uh, if we're just going to go down like this little bit of rabbit hole real quick, Amazon, um, well, you know, it kind of did the whole Black Lives Matter, we support Black Lives thing. Mm. But then there was a, a, a black woman who was pregnant on one of their floors and she passed out. And she uh, she actually, um, I think she lost her baby because oh, she passed out and they didn't call an ambulance for her because it was, right. it was better to not call the ambulance. So that just kind of goes to show you that, you know, they didn't really care. They don't really care about they don't care about any lives, you know, they care about capital. Yeah, exactly. so. yeah. um, okay. So I think um, section three, which is branches of English industry without legal limits to exploitation. The most important thing in this entire section. Uh, and if I can be frank, it was the only thing I highlighted in this entire section. Um, it's where he's talking about the, so, so he's talking about capitalism and he's talking about how mm. this guy, the Reverend Montague Valpy, right? He says it, he describes capitalism of the system itself as one of unmitigated slavery, socially, physically, mm. morally, and spiritually. And he says, uh, we declaim against the Virginian and Caroline, uh, Carolinian cotton planters. Is their black market, their lash, and their barter of human flesh more detestable than the slow sacrifice mm. of humanity, which takes place in order that veals and collars may fabricate for the benefit of capitalists? So I wanted to say mm. Marx, um, in most of his work, like even if you read some other things by Marx, um, 
he constantly is talking about like, and we talk about this a lot too, is what we call wage slavery, right? You're a slave to the wage. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's this interesting, like, uh, it, it, it's, um, it's what, like when you think about freedom, right. And like a philosophical context, mm-hmm. is it for, do you have freedom to, or do you have freedom from, right? So if I put a gun down, right in front of you and I say and I have a gun on trained on you and I say either pick up the gun or shoot yourself or I will kill you then you have the freedom to choose to shoot yourself or not but you don't have the freedom from choosing to shoot yourself or not because you're in this situation where your life it's it's a it's not a choice right Zizek talks about this a lot and he says that there's a um I think it was in Hungary. Hungary is, um, I think it's a country that, and, and I'm not 100% sure on the, the country, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but essentially there's mandatory military service, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes there and they, they say that you have to get up and you have to, you know, put your hand on the Bible and say, you know, my own free will, I'm choosing to like serve my country. And he's like, I'm not going to do that because I don't choose that. And so right. the choice, the choice was, they were like, but you have to. It has to be of your own free will. And he's like, well, are you telling me that I don't have to do it? And they're like, well, no. If you don't do it, you're going to jail. But <laughs> right. you know, it has to be of your own free choice. And he goes, well, then it's not my choice, right? Like, you, he has the freedom to, he has the freedom to not do that. But his his choices are do that or go to jail. So I mean, in when you talk about like wage slavery, you don't have you don't have the like capitalists always like to say, Oh, like capitalism's great. Cause you have this like freedom, right? You have the freedom to, to be anything. Right. But you don't have the freedom mm-hmm. from being anything. Right. So like, let's say I wanted to be like a poet. If I wanted to be a poet and whatever, um, you know, let's say I want to be a poet, but I couldn't survive off of my poetry. Then mm-hmm. I don't have the freedom from working a, like a soul crushing job. I have the freedom to not work it and then to start. So, right. I think that's important um, as a distinction. Like, and that, I think that's where, again, like a lot of the um, slavery imagery that Marx uses, uh, you know, that's kind of where we get the whole term like wage slave from. Right. Right. Um, and later on, what I, what I took from it was, uh, um, he kind of briefly just says he, he talks about Ireland and Scotland and the uh, the uh, labor, you know, culture or the labor policies they have there. And he says that they, you know, uh, he, he realized in a way, I think he just used an example, but he says um, the more you work. Uh, and he said in Scotland, these guys will be working, you know, 13 to 14 hours. And he says that, you know, they worked and worked and worked and their brains stopped thinking and their eyes stopped seeing um, that, you know, they were being uh, that their labor was, you know, they were being exploited out of their labor. Um, and so I kind of that's really what I took uh, from there is um, and he it's it's a good bit. I mean, it's like two paragraphs, but I really liked when he was talking about Ireland and Scotland and the different types of uh, uh, realization about labor and their resistance to their bosses. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty good stuff there. And other than what you said, I think that's a good takeaway is 
uh, or what the, my main takeaway was that you know the more they work, they you kind of just you lose your your drive to think and you lose your drive to see because um, we're we are slaves to our wage and the wage is what what's driving us and we stop thinking about our other uh, biological drives and things that we have to fulfill emotional fulfillments and intrinsic fulfillments and all it becomes all we re- are reduced down to is uh you know being maybe exactly what i said you know just being a slave star those wages and that's all we get we get so consumed by it and that we consume it so much you know yeah exactly um yeah. So uh, section four is uh, he's, it says day and night work the relay system. So he just kind of talks about how um, uh, the factory system developed this day night cycle because they realized it was more advantageous to stay open. So you have day laborers and night laborers, right? Um, because it says that like <laughs> it says the prolongation of the working day beyond the limits of the natural day into the night only acts as a palliative. Right. It mm. quenches only in a slight degree the vampire thirst for the living blood of labor. Mm. To appropriate labor during all the twenty four hours of the day is therefore the inherent tendency of capitalist production. Right. It's it's funny because like uh, you know, my, my dad, he works at a, uh, he works, or he still does work at a, a tire factory in, in White, Georgia, uh, at Toyo, and they don't do it anymore. I mean, they still do, but now you actually have a choice in the matter. For like the first seven years of their their operation uh, there, um, you didn't have a choice. You worked a swing shift in your department. You mm-hmm. would work like, you would work two days on and then have two days off and then you'd have three days on and three days off. Mm-hmm. And then for two weeks you did that during the day. And then for the next two weeks you did that during the night. Ugh. And, and I, my dad would come home and he would always say, they're turning us into vampires. And now I think about it. I mean, it's literally perfect that he said that because they really do. They bring them in, they make them work all night. You know, they're all like, I just imagine like everybody working in this like fluorescently lit <laughs> warehouse and like they're all pale skinned and like, all being worked to death and their, their late, their labor is just being sucked out of them. And my dad would come and my dad would come home and just look absolutely miserable. And mm-hmm. in a way, like they, they, they paid him well enough to where, and my dad, and my dad had already, we've, he had already been so victimized by, by a capital that now all he's thinking about is putting money in our bank accounts. So like, and that's it. Like my dad, outside of work my dad doesn't have much of a personality because he's never been allowed to he's never been given the freedom to develop one right and he's, never, and he's never been given the freedom to express himself so when you ever talk to my dad he can be a little weird because he doesn't know what to talk about because like all he does is fucking work and like it's you know it's it, 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 you respect the hell out of it because he did it you know he'll he'll say he always did it for you know mom and and me and my sister but like at the same time like i hate that I hate that capital has has manipulated him into thinking like that's normal and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And that and he's supposed to find happiness from that. But um, I mean, yeah, it's like it's like they're literally just these late night workers in these factories. It's like it's a vampire factory. They're just turning everyone into vampires. And my dad for for so long until until I you know got more political as I got older, I'd explain to him all like it's ridiculous that people like you and what you've had to go through. And it's unjust that you've had to work so much mm-hmm. and get and gets and not get anywhere 
and not that you have to go anywhere in life because that's also one of the deceptive things about capital is it's always about where we're going and how we can upgrade to being a, a, the next how we can upgrade ourselves in the form of capital mm-hmm. and i think i think my dad my dad's always kind of been driven by he's always been driven to show people to show the world that you know you don't have to be super educated to get far i mean he's 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 up there in the food chain at that factory. I mean, he he's a decision maker, so he's making good money now, and he's worked his way all the way up there. But like, I know, and he won't openly admit it because he doesn't understand. But he doesn't have. He's never been able to fully express himself and to actually live uh, a, a life of freedom in that sense because he would work those long fucking hours, and then when he comes home, he doesn't want to do anything. You know, so like. He resorts to, uh, you know, just sitting around and watching TV. And when that happens, you know, the, the fucking the media, uh, the awful enemy of the people, the media just kind of almost like, you know, I hate to use the term because it's overused everywhere, but brainwashing. You know, he mm-hmm. he, he, he sits around and gets brainwashed by more capital. And so it's it, it sucks because, uh, you know, it's and I just I felt into a huge rabbit hole there. But it's a, it's a really good example, I think, because. Um, because my dad, because he he perfectly encapsulated it, and I didn't even know it now that I think about it. But he 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 really did. He said working night shifts made him feel like vampires, and but they don't do that anymore now. I think they realized that their culture was getting kind of they were having too many issues. I think uh, like uh, office and, and like uh, and each like human resource wise, mm-hmm. they're having a lot of issues. And I think they came under scrutiny because somebody died at Toyo overnight. Yeah. Uh, while they were working. So uh-huh. they definitely had, they had like, they had eyes on them for a while. And it wasn't national news, but it was local, big local news. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that factory is essentially just a death cult anyway. Like, yeah, I mean, I remember that fucking Thanksgiving where they gave everyone food poisoning or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. The food, <laughs> food, they, every, literally every fucking body got sick from that, from that bullshit. And, uh, and they still made them go to work. Yeah, they sure did. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a good way of looking about it. And, and uh, the the capitalist is going to create as many shifts as they are allowed to until they get called out, or until until somebody slaps them on the wrist again for a little while. They're gonna they're gonna you know they're gonna find a way to suck more out of you. And th- usually that that's where night shifts come in. And I think night shifts are just like they're they're the most awful thing. And it's weird because when I worked at the movie theater, it didn't feel like a night shift, but it most definitely was a night shift because mm-hmm. you'd go because I'd go in at like four thirty or five, and then I don't know when I would come out. Like if I was lucky, I'd get out right after midnight, mm-hmm. but but most days I wouldn't get home till like two a.m. or three a.m. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's it's definitely weird, and that's when I got super depressed, and that's when I started I stopped going to the gym and just kind of got in my own head because the culture the work culture was just so bad there and the turnover was so high, so uh, a lot of and that's when I realized that I think uh, I, I remember in one of the first episodes we did with uh, Josh, I was talking about how when I was when I was put into a position of like decision making and a position of power or like mm-hmm. a supervisory position, it that's when I got my most depressed I had ever been in my life because I felt like I was becoming a capitalist or I didn't realize I was becoming like a puppet of a capitalist, you know, mm-hmm. like I was I was embodying capital by telling people how they're supposed to go out their work day like and and it was just weird because most most of the people i worked with were kids so they didn't necessarily care that that they were asked you know they had energy and it's almost uh, it's really dark but like to think that 
more more and more people are probably going to start hiring younger and younger because kids don't give a fuck you know they don't understand and dude when i the only time i ever was like tried to go to every single like shift or whatever that i had to go to and not like absolutely hate my job like i think i may have called out like maybe once or whatever was my first ever job and then after that every single job after that has just been like a fucking hate of my life and want to die and like well, yeah, yeah, and, and it's part of your growth, you know, and 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 we're 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 under we're we're understanding that capital is definitely manipulative, and in a, we're in an era where we we want to we want to accelerate uh, we want to accelerate the the accelerate the resolutions and we want to, we want to push out answers and, and find answers and spread and spread, you know, Marxism where we want, and we want to spread the, the words of Karl Marx and his ideas. So, so anytime like you, you see somebody on, on Twitter or somebody posting about Marx that says, Hey, maybe you should read Marx. Like you definitely should read Marx. And it's, it's pathetic that he's not even, I don't even think he's in like the top leftist like reads right now. Like in the, in the United States, it's like, it's fucking like Chomsky and, and mm-hmm. some other fucking, you know, some anarcho kitties or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, I think these words are important, and I think more and more people are. I think more. I think to, and it's all about you know discussing uh, discussing things, and it's all about talking with people. But you can't do that shit in the workplace now because you'll fucking lose your job now. Like you know, Amazon is trying to literally create a formula to uh, to to root out uh, labor unions and like unionization. So um, it's it's, diff- it's difficult to talk about this stuff. And like, I'm glad that you and I can talk about it in this kind of format. Uh-huh. And and what sucks is that when we do want to talk about something like this to our coworkers, it's really hard to do that because capital is so draining of us and it's so draining of our culture that when we're done working we all just want to fucking go home and 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 consume and just you know turn off our brains and stop thinking and and even though we haven't really been thinking that hard throughout the work day it's just we're just on like creation mode and we're on capital mode so it's it's sad that we are it's so alienating and we can't talk about stuff like this to our coworkers unless we're off the job and you know one of the one of the best methods of unionizing is you can you know you, you avoid the workplace because you only want to do it around people you trust and mm-hmm. i mean that's a whole different conversation but you know we're we're, we're talking about his his our big the biggest takeaways from this chapter yeah um okay so i think so he also talks about so he, he goes on to talk about uh, the master's interest versus the slave's preservation in terms of the mm-hmm. slave's preservation i think this can mm-hmm. Marx kind of like takes Hegel's master slave dialectic and kind of talks about how the, the, the master's interest is only in what he can glean from the slave. So, it, you know, he's yeah. talking about the capitalist versus the labor. And then he mm-hmm. also, um, he talks about how there's, um, okay. So this is pretty important too. He talks about how there's, um, uh, there's this everyone knows that there's going to he says like capital is essentially reckless he says capital is reckless of the health or length of life of the laborer unless under compulsion from society um it it says um like 
He says, in every stock-jobbing swindle, everyone knows that sometime or other the crash must come, but everyone hopes that it may fall on the head of his neighbor after Mm -hmm. he himself has caught the shower of gold and placed it into safety. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh, he, he says, capital... Capital has such good reasons for denying the suffering of the legions of worker that surround it. Mm-hmm. Um, free competition brings out the inherent laws of capitalist production in the shape of external coercive laws having power over every individual capitalist. The establishment of a normal working day is the result of centuries of struggle between the capitalist and the laborer. Yep. So, yeah. And then he describes... Um, um, let's see, where was it? Oh, well, that that's it. He talks about this thing called the House of Terror, essentially, mm-hmm. um, which isn't a big, it's not really a big deal. Yeah, so he he does, he talks about a lot of, like, historical stuff. You can, yeah. you know, kind of read that on your own if you want to or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he says, and just kind of sum it up, his, his House of Terror, uh, the ideal workhouse for capitalists, you know, the poor shall work 14 hours a day and allow just enough proper time for meals in such a manner that there shall remain 12 hours of labor after they eat. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's the ideal workhouse to a capitalist. And, and then in section six, yeah, he, he, he's, he's got a good, he's got a good introduction here where he gets kind of like, um, you know, he talks about, uh, I, I remember him saying something about orgies here. <laughs> Every he, boundary set by morality and nature, age, sex, day, and night. It's all it, it's all broken down essentially under capitalism. Um, even the ideas of day and night, which are in the old statutes of peasant simplicity, become so confused. Uh, an English judge as late as 1860 needed the penetration of an interpreter of the Tal- Talmud to explain judicially what was day and what is considered night uh, in capital and capital is just winning all over this guy. And capital is celebrating its, its orgies <laughs> is what he says. Uh, so he also talks about like later on how um, there was progress in like limiting the working day um, and also limiting the, like a ch- child's working day. And he says the manufacturers, however, did not allow this progress without a compensating retrogression. At their instigation, the House of Commons reduced the minimum age for exploitable children from nine to eight in order to assure that additional supply of factory children, which is due to capitalists, according to divine and human law. <laughs> OK, uh, yeah, I. I, you know, as, as I'm flipping through, I mean. I got a little bit in, in section seven. Uh, Here you go. This is the, this is day. this is the most important thing in section seven. Uh, in the United States of North America, every independent mm-hmm. movement of the workers was paralyzed so long as slavery disfigured a part of the republic. Labor cannot. Mm-hmm. This is why I hate when people talk about Marx being racist. Labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin, where in the black it is branded. Hmm. But out of death of slavery, a new life at once arose. The first fruit of the Civil War was the eight hours agitation that ran with the seven leagued boots and locomotives from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Um, So uh, Mm -hmm. after the Civil War, um, they thought, well, hey, you know, this slavery thing kind of fucking sucks, but also um, working kind of fucking sucks all these hours. So that's when they passed the eight hour working day in case you. People at home were wondering. 
oh, where that comes cool. from. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's not, it's not cool, but I mean, like, that's it's it's interesting that I came from that. Our our working day comes from that. Yeah. So it says the bargain. Um, okay. So the, the a laborer comes out of the process of production, other than he entered it. In the market, he stood as the owner of the commodity labor power face-to-face with other owners of commodity dealer against dealer. Um, he said the contract by which he sold to the capitalist, his labor power proved, so to say, in black and white, that he disposed of himself freely. The bargain concluded. It is discovered that he was no free agent, that the time for which he is free to sell his labor power is a time for which he is forced to sell it. That, in fact, the vampire will not lose its hold on him so long as there is a muscle, a nerve, a drop of blood to be exploited for protection against the serpent of their agonies. The laborers must put their heads together and as a class compel the passing of a law, an all powerful social barrier that shall prevent the very workers from selling by voluntary contract with capital themselves and their families into slavery and death. Amen. So that's chapter 10. Yeah. And I, don't think I didn't know I didn't read chapter 11 I thought we were only doing chapter 10 so I, I mean that's chapter fair 11. chapter 11 wasn't that interesting I'll I'll uh I'll run through it really quick and then we'll we'll, we'll get no, on it's really short here. too oh, my, my version is only like four pages yeah so chapter 11 is the rate and mass of surplus value okay um so he 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 describes his um um his formulation for surplus value a little more he said the mass of the surplus value produced is equal to the amount of the variable capital advanced multiplied by the rate of surplus value. In other words, it is determined by the compound ratio between the number of labor powers exploited simultaneously by the same capitalist and the degree of exploitation of each individual labor power. Mm-hmm. He says later on, he says, um, the capitalist divides his capital in, into two parts. One part he lays out in means of production. This is the constant part of his capital. The other part he lays out in the living labor power. He says this this part forms the variable capital. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. Um, so there's he 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 talks about Heigl. Um, he actually names Heigl in this section, which is interesting. Oh, he's done that before. He mentioned him. Uh... He mentioned him in a, in a previous work, but it wasn't, I don't think it was his dialectics work or anything that he was mentioned in, or that he mentioned. He said that merely, so he talks about Hegel, and he says in Hegel's Science of Logic, he describes in, in his natural science, right, his mm-hmm. philosophy, that uh, merely quantitative differences beyond a certain point pass into qualitative changes. Um, So the minimum of the sum of value that the individual possessor of money or commodities must command in order to metamorphose metamorphose himself into a capitalist changes with the different stages of development of capitalist production. And is that given stages different in different spheres of production according to their special and technical conditions. So this is an important point, Mm -hmm. right? So the, Quantitative changes, right, that he's talking about the change from quantitative to qualitative means that when you develop as a capitalist nation, depending on certain things of whether or not you can technically be considered a capitalist, right? So this is why I keep stressing to people, right? 
rich does not equal capitalist. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Because capital is the ownership. To be a capitalist, you have to own the means of production and own your own labor power, right? Mm -hmm. right. So a capitalist buys the labor power of others and exploits that labor power to generate surplus value in capital and then takes that surplus value for themselves like a vampire. Mm -hmm. So, like, I'm sorry to say this, but, like, rich people aren't necessarily capitalists. You have to have you have to have a certain relationship to the means of production. Now, if you are rich and you, let's just say, okay, um, let's say you're a professional uh, basketball player, right? Mm -hmm. A professional basketball player could be a multi-million and even multi-billionaire, but because yes. he sells his labor power to the person who owns the team, the person who owns the team is the capitalist. And he is technically, yep. he's not, he's not, I wouldn't call him a proletariat because he's not in like an mm -hmm. underclass, but he, he is right. technically the worker. Right. Well, yeah. And well, and then we, but we do see athletes become capitalists, but in yes. that sense, because we see, we see athletes create these organizations or we see athletes create these platforms that end up employing people. And then, and then in that well, sense, th Michael, then yes, they, they become a capitalist. Michael Jordan's a capitalist, right? Because he owns Jordan. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he he bought the me he basically bought the means of production of jo of Jordan and that division of Nike. Even though maybe Nike actually may own it, because uh, I think Nike it's a Nike brand actually. So it might be Nike. Right, but his his relationship but, to the means of production has changed in that regard oh, because he. He technically um, owns the intellectual means of production for Jordans. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, in, in the terms, in the terms of Jordans, uh, the, the terms of labor in the the Jordan, uh, you know, organization, uh, I don't think they'll. I don't think. I mean, he does control it because in the end, like he, what he says probably goes. You know, I mean, they're not going to do anything. Uh, without his say in it, because I think ultimately he owns the brand uh, name Jordan. So yeah, so yeah. exactly yeah. So yeah. Also in this section, he talks about how th this is a pretty good, uh, pretty mm. good chapter. I'd recommend going back and reading it. But like I'm just kind of giving you guys the rundown. Um, capital develops into a coercive relationship, which compels the working class to do more work than the narrow round of his own life once prescribed. As a producer of the activity of others, as a pumper out of surplus labor and exploiter of labor power, it surpasses an energy disregard of bounds and recklessness and efficiency. All earlier systems of production based on directly compulsory labor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that's yeah that's that, no yeah that's exactly I was I was just applying it to the the Jordan thing I was I was thinking of and yeah I I follow yeah so um I, that that's basically it um I was just gonna end it there because uh, I actually have to go but um sure yeah so cool. uh anyway guys well we will uh we'll see you next time all right see you guys.